everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musical's deep dive into classic musicals. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased and honored to be joined by my quick-witted and intuitive colleague, the one and only Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. Can you tell that I went to a thesaurus to come up with other words to describe I'm, I'm you? So flattered. Because you just can you defy description. Oh, thanks so much. In the best way. I every day. I, I know. I feel like we say this every episode, but any day where we get to talk about musicals is a good day. I agree. I agree, and it's a joy to get to talk about them with your brilliant self. Well, toss, toss. So some exciting developments with our little podcast. We are, have been so successful, we've expanded to some other platforms. So if you listen on iHeartRadio or on Stitcher, it's so great to have you. Welcome. And please, you know, continue to share us with your friends and people you love and who also love musicals. It's been a joy for us to do this little podcast and we're thrilled that we're getting a response we are. So please like, rate, review in the Apple iTunes store, podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Annika, would you like to tell people what musical is in the spotlight this week? Dun, dun, do, do, do. Yes, we were talking about Les Mis. The 1987 Broadway mega musical by way of Paris, then by way of London, written by Alain Boublil and Claude Michel Schoenberg, based on the novel by Victor Hugo, music by Claude Michel Schoenberg, lyrics by Herbert Kretzmer, original French text by Alain Boublil and Jean-Marc Nattel, additional material by James Fenton, orchestrations by John Cameron. I, okay, first off, I'm so impressed that you did the full credits because I didn't even think you were going to do the full credits because I think it's the longest full credits in the history of musical theater. <laughs> well, that's kind of why I did it because I was like, it says a lot about the show just to start with that it's had such a long journey that there are a lot of cooks in this kitchen and yet to have come out the brilliant show that it is, it's really uh, remarkable. But yes, there's many people whose words and music have become a part of the show that is Les Mis. And we're going to call it Les Mis because everybody does, because the French title is a little bit hard to say without sounding like a jerk. Les Miserables, if you want to be very French about it, or Les Miserables, if you want to be American about it. Or if you want to be my substitute teacher from ninth grade English, Les Miserables. Oh, <laughs> Okay, we're going to try something for Les Mis, and let's see how it goes. Because this show is so long and encompasses so many plots, instead of giving you the full luxurious description, I'm going to challenge Michael Fling to summarize Les Mis in 60 seconds. A game that we're going to call The Speed Test. <laughs> Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Okay, so do you have 60 seconds on the clock, Annika? I do, right here. All right. And your time starts now. So Les Mis tells the story of Jean Valjean, a, a convict who is released um, uh, after 19 years in prison, um, five years only because he sold a loaf of bread to help save his starving nephew, um, and the rest because he tried to run. He goes on the run uh, after getting out of the colony. I've almost wasted a colony, what? Um, he um, get, he gets out, he um, robs a bishop. The bishop is nice to him and gives him the candlesticks for free and says, become a better man. He goes um, to Big Fancy City, owns a factory where he accidentally fires Fontaine and she becomes a prostitute to try and save her daughter Cosette. She dies. Um, and this is all while Javert is chasing him. And so he takes 
Um, so Jean Valjean takes Cosette, they start a new life in Paris, um, and then um, there are some really uh, radical students who want to stage an uprising because they're upset with the French government, and uh, Cosette falls in love with one of them, and Jean Valjean spends a lot of time uh, trying to save him, which he does, and then Jean Valjean dies. That's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, okay, it could be worse. No, it could be worse. You did a great job. Um, you did a great job. Things that didn't make it in, uh, what, many people's favorite character, um, Eponine um, and the Tenardiers who care for Cosette early in her life, and I use the term care loosely, but uh, Eponine has a crush on Marius, who is the student that Cosette falls in love with. Um, Eponine's also in love with him, and the Tenardiers are always in the background um, robbing and doing things uh, to try and get ahead. Uh, and then obviously you've got Javert, who is chasing after Jean Valjean trying to apprehend prisoner 24601. Yeah, that is very well done. It is a big show and uh, based on an even bigger book. And that brings us to Why God, Why? Why God, why today? Where we talk about the big idea that governs all of the plot and connects the characters and is the driving force behind the show. Uh, And what do we think that driving force is, Annika? Well, this one's a tough one because Lehman's is so huge and there are so many characters, each with their own arc. But the thing that we talked about was that ultimately it's about being the best person you can be, but specifically that being the best person you can be involves caring for the people around you and caring for the less fortunate. That's what I would say is embodied by mostly Jean Valjean. I think there's also a lot of other things. There's learning to change and adjust to different circumstances, admitting you were wrong, growing and changing. There's a whole bunch of different stuff, but that's the one that I would say is the the largest one. Well, and what you choose to care about, right? Because Jean Valjean is choosing to care about the humans in his life. Javert is choosing to care about the law. Mm-hmm. Marius cares about his political cause, but also learns to care for Cosette. Eponine cares for Marius, and that is why she acts in the way she does to help forward um, the plot. The Tenardiers care about money and scheming yeah. you know i feel like that's that continues to be something that all that connects all the characters is what they choose to care about and how they go about showing their care yeah absolutely and and again it's tricky because you know there's a kind of almost a counterexample for everyone like fontine is a genuinely good-hearted person who is sacrificing everything including her health and body and safety and ultimately life for Cosette. And that's, you know, she doesn't really get much for, like that's, that doesn't go well for her really. But yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that one of the last lines in the show is to love another person is to see the face of God is, is not an accident. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Les Mis. We can never go back to before. So, to talk about Les Mis, you need to start by talking about Victor Hugo and his novel, uh, Les Miserables, which he wrote in 1862 in France. And Victor Hugo is a titanic character. Uh, he's like one of the granddaddies of French writing, especially in Romanticism, which is a movement that celebrated the individual imagination with a search for rights and liberty, which obviously is all over Les Mis and his other novels. But he led a really interesting life. I'm going to very briefly summarize it. He was the child of a general in Napoleon's army and a royalist mother. And he was pretty much a prodigy from very early age. He was very... Um, 
intellectually engaged writing and, and doing a lot of stuff like that. And he said that Marius in Les Mis is actually a bit of a self-portrait because he was that kind of student, um, really hungry for knowledge and very idealistic. Um, he was someone who was a royalist and a Catholic when he was young, but he grew out of both beliefs. Um, he became someone who was very anti-royalist, a Republican fighting for France to become a republic. And he was someone who believed in God, but not in religion, which is kind of interesting because both of those things appear in Les Mis, both the show and the novel. So before he wrote Les Mis, he was known primarily as a poet, as he still is in France. And he had also written several plays, including Cromwell and Hernani. And then because that wasn't enough, apparently, in 1831, he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which, as we know, even today is a major work of literature. Um, and just catapulted him into the great writers of the time. So when he started writing Les Mis, and it took him 17 years to write, but he had a lot of inspirations for it, which were all really interesting. He clearly was someone who was very observant and picked up a lot of things that he then kind of squirreled away and kept for his future stories. One of them was the story of the ex-convict Eugene Francois Vidoc, who was someone who had been a convict and then turned his life around, becoming the head of an undercover unit of the police. He founded France's first private detective agency, and he became a businessman and a noted philanthropist. So obviously this has a lot of overlaps with the character of Jean Valjean, who undergoes a similar path. And one thing that I thought was really interesting was that one of the famous moments in Vidoc's life was that he once saved one of the workers in his factory by lifting a heavy cart that had fallen on him, which was a thing that happens pretty much exactly in that way in Les Mis and made it into the musical as well. And so one of the other major events in Les Mis is what's called the June Uprising, which is not, many people make the mistake when they see Les Mis of thinking that the revolution that's in Les Mis is the French Revolution, which it is not. But yeah, so the June uprising was in 1832. It was one of a series of similar uprisings that happened over the course of several years. The politics are kind of complicated, but it is, as he portrays it, an anti-monarchist uprising. And the interesting thing was, too, is that Victor Hugo was present for this very event. He actually had been writing a play when he heard gunshots. He was in a park and he ran to where the gunshots were happening. Because the barricades were set up in the streets, he ended up getting trapped in an alley for 15 minutes while there was gunfire between the people who were revolting and the police. So he was actually pressed against the wall trying to avoid this. So he was there. That was something that really he lived through. He didn't participate in it, although he did in other similar kind of events later. So by the time he started writing Les Mis, it was big news that he was going to be writing another book. And obviously his second book was 31 years after The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So people were even more anticipating it because it's, it had been a while since he had published something of that magnitude. For years before it was published, it was covered. And the New York Times even announced its future publication two years before it was published. So if you think about that, it's kind of wild. But the book was published in 1862, and it was a massive hit. It was also just a massive book. It comprises five volumes, 48 books, and 365 chapters. It's one of the largest and longest popular novels ever printed, really. But it was kind of panned by critics, right? It was panned by critics, but it was an immediate success, which is funny because that's kind of what happened with Les Mis the musical, too. Like, people were so excited for this book that there's a story that factory workers in France set up subscriptions before the book was published in order to be able to buy it because they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, but it was so important to them to have it as soon as it came out. But it really has been a success 
this ever since it was first published. And it was translated into millions of languages, but it's been in the public eye since its moment of publication. But yeah, it did not get great reviews. It was dismissed by many as being kind of sentimental, but haha, I think Hugo had the last laugh. So in the late 70s, Bubiel and Schoenberg went to a performance of the Western revival of Oliver, which had been produced by a young theater impresario by the name of Cameron McIntosh. And when they saw the character of the Artful Dodger, they were struck immediately with the resemblance to Gavroche, a character in the novel Les Mis. And they set about to write a concept album inspired by and telling the story of Les Mis. So that concept album came out in 1980 which inspired a concert-style production of the album that ran in France for 100 performances and was massively successful. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. So France does not have a musical theater tradition before this point, really, at all. And there's a thing in France about theater goes into two categories. Théâtre, which is like serious plays, and spectacle, which is like big sort of as it says, spectacles. So this was somewhere in between. And at that point, it was kind of like tableau of different stories from Les Mis. But what I absolutely love of this is that the first production they did was at the what's called the Palais des Sports, which I guess is very big. And it had a gap in their programming between Holiday on Ice and the arrival of the Moscow State Circus. So that just gives you a good sense of like how much something like Les Mis, which was sort of a little bit of a musical, a little bit of a concept album, a little bit of an opera, because it's like through sung a little bit of this novel like didn't quite have a space and the and a young hungarian director took it to cameron mcintosh and said i think this might make a great musical and cameron mcintosh was very skeptical on that but listened to the album and kind of refused the hungarian director wanted to direct it himself and cameron mcintosh said well i'm not interested in if i can't hire a director that i want and so he thought it was right up trevor nunn's alley and Trevor Nunn agreed, but only wanted to do it if he could collaborate with John Caird and the Royal Shakespeare Company. So they went back to the authors and said, hey, we have this idea. We think it could be a musical. Let's take it and really make it a musical at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it goes through an extensive writing, rewriting and adding process to yeah. get it really be the musical that we know today. Yeah, and also it was really hard for them to find the right collaborator because it was important to Cameron McIntosh that he wanted to work with Bublil and Schoenberg, which was kind of remarkable considering he could have just said, hey, we want to take this and make our, our own thing with it and not have them involved. But he wanted them to be involved. But obviously they needed someone who could translate and write an English language version. And they he approached a lot of different lyricists. Alan J. Lerner, who was like, this is... I, I love this, but this is not for me. Sheldon Harnick and Howard Ashman all turned it down. And it's kind of fascinating to think of what Les Mis would be if it was one of those guys. And ultimately they went with James Fenton, who was a British poet and a drama critic, but that did not go so well. So yeah, so Macintosh contacted Fenton, who was actually on a vacation with a friend at the time to see if he was interested, and he very much was. So he spent part of the vacation where they were like canoeing around crocodiles and all these things. He spent time reading Les Mis and joked that after he would finish a chapter, he would rip out the pages and toss it to the crocodiles because the book was so heavy to carry around on this adventure they were on. And so after that, Fenton went back and forth to France to work with uh, Bubliel and Schoenberg, but things were going very slowly. It really was not translating into musical theater the way they wanted it. It was far too poetic, a poetry that wasn't super active for actors to work on and develop character with. But James Fenton absolutely created the structure that we now recognize as the musical of Les Mis. So they realized that it was going so slowly and they weren't happy with James Fenton that they approached Herbert Kretzmer, who 
really began doing the bulk of the work of creating English lyrics for Les Mis. So Kretzmer pulled up in his house and barely emerged for the five months prior to rehearsals beginning at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And as they went into rehearsal, the show was still very much in flux. Lots of things being written, rewritten, changed. It goes through an enormous amount of transformation during its rehearsals and time uh, at Stratford-upon-Avon, including changes to Castle on a Cloud that they extended and rewrote some lyrics to, and the creation of the song Stars, uh, which is Javert's big song where he swears revenge on Valjean. And one of the big steps forward at the RSC was the writing of the song that is now called The Prayer or Bring Him Home, depending on how you refer to it. But they were struggling with this moment uh, in the barricade in Act 2 where everyone goes to sleep and Valjean is left awake. And they, at first, were really approaching it from uh, the inner conflicts within Valjean's soul about the revolution and Marius and Javert and all the things. And they realized that actually what it needed to be was a simple prayer to protect Marius because he wants Cosette to be happy. And that really pushed a lot of things forward. And the other big thing that I, I found really interesting that is that the big shift between concept album to the RSC was the adding of the prologue, which gave Jean Valjean's backstory. The concept album starts outside the factory, the song we would now associate as at the end of the day, but the addition of the now infamous prologue was added for the RSC to give some more context and backstory for Jean Valjean. But of course, at the RSC, ran over four hours. So they went through extensive cutting and extensive revision, even after performances began. Yeah, one of the stories that I love is that Michael Ball, who played Marius, recalled at one point hearing the half-hour bell for the evening performance while the matinee was still going on. Because <laughs> they were putting in all these different things and the show was just running so long, which is kind of crazy to think. The casting process was also kind of interesting and tricky. So since it was at the RSC, there's a company of actors who usually work there, but they only took three members of the RSC since so few of that company could sing. So the Tenardiers were Alan Armstrong and Sue Jane Tanner and Javert, who was Roger Allen, came from the RSC troupe. But they also got Colm Wilkinson, who is this Irish tenor for Valjean, which immediately kind of changed the game. And interestingly enough, as they started rehearsals, they didn't have a Fontaine. They couldn't find a Fontaine in England. So they ultimately imported Patti Lapone from America. But can you imagine starting rehearsals? This whole thing was like pushed right up against the start of rehearsals. They did not have a finished product. It was all a, a scramble, even as they were kind of getting things begun. So it's kind of remarkable that it, it was so messy at the start and ended up so beautiful. Well, and how many shows have their first performance run over four hours and end up, end up being an international sensation? But yeah, that actually kind of speaks to something that has happened with Les Mis at every stage, which is that even though it was four hours and messy and changing, the audiences loved it. They just, from the beginning, completely responded to it, could not get enough, which was true at every stage of this. So from the beginning, it touched a nerve with audiences, even when it didn't with critics. Yeah, so it transferred to the Barbican and had a short run there, but then eventually transferred to the West End, where it continued to undergo revision. And as the reviews from critics came on opening night, the future of the show looked very grim, including many of the cast thinking that they were not going to last much longer and needed to start looking for other jobs. So Cameron McIntosh has his traditional after-opening kind of let's look at the reviews and talk kind of discouraging, not sure what they're going to do. And he called the box office to see how sales have been going that day and couldn't get through to the box office because there were so many calls 
with tickets. And they set brand new records. And like we said, audiences were flocking to it and loving it. The word of mouth was extraordinary, which catapulted it to one of the longest runs in Western history. Which is so funny because there's a great apocryphal story about Victor Hugo, who after the publication of the novel of Les Mis, apparently sent his publisher a telegram that had only one character in it, which was a question mark, and that his publisher sent him back a telegram that was an exclamation point to indicate how well it did. So you see, it's it's so funny that there are these interesting parallels between this story's journey at every stage of it. Absolutely. I love that story too about the telegram. I forgot about that. That's a good story. I love that too. (laughs) So obviously the tremendous Western success brings demand for it to go to Broadway, which of course it does and is massively successful. So it had an initial capitalization of four and a half million dollars and its advance, its ticket advance before opening was four million. So the word of mouth had reached New York that this was the show to see. And even as the show crossed the pond, they continued to make the show even tighter and added a few glitzy technical effects that they thought would really wow New York audiences. The creative team described the changes as mostly things that people wouldn't, weren't likely to notice. But I think the biggest change that is noticeable is the lyrics at the end of Javert's Stars were changed. And when it went over to Broadway, it ends with This I Swear by the Stars, while the London production and the cast recording over there ended with the repeated line, keeping watch in the night. So when Les Mis came over, and it didn't bring much of its London cast, really only Colm Wilkinson and Francis Ruffell, uh, who played Eponine, came over, where otherwise it was a new cast of Broadway people. But it did do really well. And it was nominated for 12 Tonys and won eight of them, including Best Musical, Best Book, and Best Score. So it was just a, a big old hit. And it goes on to be produced internationally, you know, in some like record-breaking numbers, including 42 countries. I'm not going to read them all, but roughly 57 million people around the world have seen Les Mis, which just to give an idea is roughly the population of the country of Italy. And it's been translated into 21 languages, including English, Japanese, Hebrew, Hungarian, Icelandic, Norwegian, German, Polish, Swedish, Dutch, Danish, French, Czech, Castilian, Creole, Flemish, Finnish, Argentinian, Portuguese, Estonian, and Mexican Spanish. So an incredible journey for a show that began in French and had such a a process to even get to English and then another 19 languages. Yeah. And which was kind of its own creature. I mean, it's part musical, it's part opera. It's sort of like from a tradition that had neither of these things written by a composer who mostly did sort of pop music. It's really an interesting hybrid thing that ended up just working out really beautifully. And it's one of the most recorded musicals of all time with over 40 cast recordings in various languages and from various countries and various casts which is just fascinating. I mean, even just like the concerts that they've done, just the recordings of that is more than a lot of really successful musicals get. Yeah, and it makes it hard when you're a a little musical nerd growing up trying to figure out which one is your favorite recording. And the answer is always usually a hybrid. I was going to say, so, but if you had to pick, which one do you listen to when you listen to the show? Oh, when I listen to the show, I really, hmm. Growing up, I listened to the one of the concerts Oh, yeah, I listen to the 10th anniversary concert, usually. I think that tends to be the one that I think is kind of considered the best. I happen to listen to the 25th anniversary because I really love that one. Yeah. Um, Alfie Bow is out of this world. And like, I got a soft spot for Nick Jonas, even though he sounds like a total pop. He sounds totally different than everyone else in the cast, but I love it. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> 
So a couple of the fun facts that I love about Les Mis is that in 2004, at the request of the Queen of England, Les Mis gave a special performance at Windsor Castle in celebration of the centennial of Britain and France's Entente Cordiale, which took many takes for me to get right, but is also, for those of you who do not speak French or know what that is, it's the agreement of friendship between France and Britain. So it had a special Royal Command performance, which is something that doesn't happen a ton today. And the other interesting little nugget was that reportedly the RSC has made 19 million pounds in royalties from Les Mis over the course of its historically long runs on Broadway and the West End. Yeah, and it's interesting because musicals don't usually originate at not-for-profit theater companies that are known for doing Shakespeare, doing plays like that. So there's a lot of stories about how uh, Trevor Nunn's process of making theater was actually really helpful in making this piece particularly because there was a lot more table work, there was a lot more exercises than you might associate with a, a musical of this size. So it really, they merely managed to make it feel populated by individuals and, and did a lot of deep work on it from the get-go. So Annika, name one other very successful musical that was developed at the RSC and by the RSC. Oh, crap. Matilda? Sometimes you have to be a little bit naughty. Yep, you're right. It's Matilda. (laughs) Um, I'm sure there are others, but that's the one that I think of. So, yes. So, unsurprisingly, after the lengthy, lengthy, lengthy original run of Les Mis, it has been revived on Broadway more than once. It has had productions all around the world. To name them would be to be here forever. And then... Most notably, it was turned into a film version by the director Tom Hooper in 2012, starring Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway and a bunch of other people. Russell Crowe, Amanda Seyfried, my boyfriend Eddie Redmayne. Owen Wilkinson coming in as the bishop, making everyone cry. Well, and that movie's most famous. I, I think it will go down in history as the, the fame of Les Mis was that they recorded all the vocals live on set. It was not pre-recorded because Tom Hooper wanted to get to that grit and that reality, which made that a very taxing process for those performers and was a heavy source of publicity prior to the film's premiere. So Annika's deep dive musical analysis is going to be a little different this week. So Annika, show us what's inside the score of Les Mis. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right. So there are so many good songs in Les Mis that, again, there's just a wealth to choose from. But what I'm going to try to do is something slightly different than I usually do, which is that I'm not going to do a deep dive into one short song. I'm going to illustrate how the show uses songs to illustrate something very important about the characters of Valjean and Javert. So we're going to take the songs, What Have I Done, uh, which is also called Valjean's Soliloquy and Javert's Suicide, and show you how the show is illustrating who these two characters are and how they're similar. So if you want to go listen to them, What Have I Done or Valjean's Soliloquy and Javert's Suicide, I'm listening to the original Broadway cast recording of but as we know there are several versions of the show so you can really listen to any of them if you'd like so basically Valjean and Javert are two of my favorite characters in musical theater because and just in literature as well they're great characters because it's so complex who they are they're actually doppelganger characters which means that they're basically mirrors of each other a doppelganger is kind of like a a ghostly version of yourself roughly but they're the same and also complete opposites. So it's not really so simple as good and bad, although in 
in Les Mis, obviously Valjean is the protagonist, Javert is the antagonist, but they're really antagonists for each other. They're each other's polar opposites, but only because they are so alike, which is kind of weird, right? But yes, indeed, they are both men who devote their lives to the notion of doing the right thing. But unfortunately for them, their definition of doing the right thing is directly opposed. So for Valjean, it is doing good for others, even if that means bending the rules or breaking the law, i.e. breaking his parole for pretty much his whole life, which he does. But for Javert, it's much more black and white. The law is good. Breaking the law is bad. A life enforcing the law is good. Criminals are bad. The end. Everything to him is either or. And Valjean is really all gray zone, whereas Javert is black and white. So that's exactly what they are. They're, neither of them is, is strictly bad. Neither of them is good. The gray zone is the fun part. And the show could have been a little more simple with this. It could have easily made Javert kind of villainous and Valjean all good. But it doesn't want to do that. It makes sure that we know this about them, that they are intertwined in a really basic way. And one of my favorite things about that is that you can see their reflections of each other in their names. Valjean is VJ, Valjean. Javert is JV, JV. So right there, see, it's flipped. Isn't that cool? So, okay, so how does Les Mis draw these parallels and get in this level of shading when they have so much plot to deal with and so many characters? Well, one of the ways they do this is they write two songs for the two characters to sing at their crisis moments that are, spoiler alert, the same song. For Valjean, this is when he's had his encounter with the bishop early in the show. He's been given the candlesticks. The bishop has basically not followed the rules and said he is a criminal, which he is. He's stolen these things from him. And that really counteracts the vision of the world that Valjean had embraced, right? The world was treating him badly, treating him like a criminal. The world was treating him like a monster for being in prison. So he was going to act like one, right? That's what he decides. That's why he takes the silver from the bishop. For Javert, this moment is when Valjean has had his chance for revenge and let Javert go free at the barricades. And it's also, I think, when Valjean has asked for leniency for Marius after Javert catches him coming out of the sewers after the barricade falls. So Valjean has proven twice that although he is an escaped criminal, he will not behave the way that Javert has assumed he would and been a bad person or taken his right, right, to have vengeance, which is very important for Javert. So both of them have had a, an encounter that has completely challenged the way that they see the world. So both of these songs are not short songs. So what I'm going to do is simply play them and break them into the chunks that are sort of thematic for each of them and show how each of them is slightly different in each one. So the first section for each of the men is what I call the oh crap section. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have a better term for that really. Each of them is panicked and trying to make sense of something that has challenged their entire worldview. And you can hear in the music, it's rushed, it's anxious. You can feel the energy of them having to deal with their kind of bottom being taken out from under them of their entire worldview. So let's listen to Valjean's version of this first. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far, and is the hour so late? But nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears. Here where I stand at the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and murdered Valjean, and they chained me and left me for dead. Just for stealing a mouthful of bread. 
Okay, so you get Valjean there and, you know, what have I done, sweet Jesus, what have I done? But he's already, even though you can hear all that agitation, he's already more contemplative. He's examining the situation and his role in it, but we can still very much feel him clinging to his anger about how he's been treated, about how unfair his life has been up until this point. But the question that he's asking himself is, who am I? And he's talking about also, who is Jean Valjean, which is the ultimate question of Valjean. Who am I? When can I claim my own name? Uh, when do we push it away? And that's also a Hugo thing. You have to examine yourself. It's a very romanticism thing. So let's listen to Javert's version. Man, what sort of devil is he to have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my face. Wipe out the past and wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the death of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I've been his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. All right, so then we get Javert's, and unsurprisingly, and again, it's the same music, right? They're undergoing the same moment in their life. So Javert's is unsurprisingly more blunt, and we can hear him swinging between possible explanations. Valjean is a devil. Valjean is mocking him. He wants Javert to be in his debt. It's all kind of going through every available reason that Javert has for this. He's not very good at really questioning something, right? He's just trying to fit it in different boxes. And while Valjean's is all, who am I? Javert's is all, who is he, right? Javert is really not interested in self-examination. And this is full of Javert language, religion, the law. And I, I just love what he says there. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. This is what will ultimately break him, right? That he can't fathom that he might be like someone that he considers so opposite to everything he believes in. He just cannot bear that. Valjean would probably have Javert over for dinner to talk about their similarities, right? Valjean has an open mind, an open heart. He's willing to consider lots of things. He's, he's really a debater. Javert, not at all. So then we go into what, what I call the thinking about it section, right? After this kind of agitation, this energy, you can feel that sort of tension in there. We drop into something a lot slower, opens up a little, it becomes more emotional with those strings playing a repetitive melody that kind of swings up and then goes back over itself. It's the music of, of contemplation, of stepping back from this initial, holy crap, what's just happened to, wait, okay, let me just make sense of this. So let's listen to it for Valjean. Yet why did I allow that man To touch my soul and teach me love He treated me like any other He gave me his trust He called me brother My life he claims for God above Can such things be? I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. So we've got this pondering of the goodness of the bishop. You can hear in his language that who Valjean is is really going to be something close to the bishop ultimately, right? He can see this as a good thing, a generous thing. Unlike Javert, who's like, why did he do that? He's trying to con me in some way, you know? Valjean is not cynical. 
even though he has acted cynically up until this point because he sort of had to, he's really comfortable in this place of thinking about it, even though this is an uncomfortable realization for him to have. And Javert? How can I now allow this man to hold dominion over me? This desperate man whom I have hunted, he gave me my life, he gave me freedom. I should have perished by his hand. It was his right. It was my right to die as well. Instead, I live but live in hell. Javert is obviously the same thing. He's pondering this. He's he's over this first moment of energy. But for him, all the language is very different, right? It's not about opening his heart to the possibilities. It's about dominion. And Valjean had the right to kill Javert at the barricade, but he he didn't. He let him go free. And then, of course, he's like appeared with Marius and asked for leniency so that he can save this man's life. But Javert can't, he just doesn't have the language for it, right? It's all about heaven and hell and dominion and all, it's all so harsh, even here, even when he's trying to think about it. And then we get to what I call the changes hard section, when both men have a very anguished emotional moment, right? They've gone past the initial anger. They've dropped into this thinking about it contemplation. And then they have this kind of cri de corps, just feeling the, the emotion of the potential here, right? But Valjean is going to go backwards here, and Javert is going to come to the closest he ever does to accepting the truth. So let's just listen to it here. Take a knife for a knife. Turn your heart into Okay, and we get obviously that beautiful big high note. We can just feel that so deeply. Take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known, right? Coming from Valjean, this sounds both a little, maybe a little bit of an excuse, but also a shifting realization that he's been living the wrong way, right? This is all I have lived for. This is all I have known. There's a little bit of like horror in it, I think, of I was wrong. We're hearing kind of his heart open up in a way that I think he's he's starting to feel the guilt of how he has lived because he's always introvert, you know, he's always looking inside. But Javert is going to feel something very different. Can my thoughts fly apart? Can this man be believed? Shall his sins be forgiven? Shall his crimes be reprieved? So Javert doesn't go high, right? If the high notes are kind of like the peak of emotion, the low notes feel like he's still working out a lot of stuff, right? This is going somewhere more visceral for him. He's just having to figure out what this all means, right? My thoughts fly apart. Can this man be believed? Shall his sins be forgiven? Shall his crimes be reprieved? He doesn't have the capability of doing what Valjean does, which is to think, oh God, this, this means a whole other thing. His thoughts are flying apart, right? He's never talking about his heart. He's never talking about his feelings. Can this man be believed? Shall his sins be forgiven? They're all questions. He can't really answer his own questions, Javert, and that's going to be the problem. 
And of course, we get that beautiful build at the end where as they're hitting these notes, these big notes for the words that are important to them, ultimately, this is all I have known, right? Shall his crimes be reprieved? So for Valjean, he's going to have to learn. For Javert, it's about reprieved. It's still a very lawful word. Then we're going to get into another thinking about it section that's going to be marching us towards the end. So let's just listen to this quick. Valjean. One word from him and I'd be back Beneath the lash upon the rack Instead he offers me my freedom I feel my shame inside me like a knife He told me that I had a soul How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? And that's obviously, I mean, very, very Valjean here. He's thinking about it. He's really kind of moving towards what's going to be the end of this song, which we're going to get to. He offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife, right? Valjean's already feeling guilt, feeling shame, feeling at all. He told me that I have a soul. How does he know? These are big lofty questions, right? That he's willing to go forth and answer. And I love that he says, what spirit comes to move my life? For Javert, is talking a lot more about religion in his version than Valjean is talking about here. But this is Valjean's version, right? It's the quick of a religion rather than the rules of a religion. And he's the one who's actually been given religion by the bishop. The bishop says, I have bought your soul for God. So for Valjean, it's going to come from a really organic place within him. For Javert, Javert has taken all of the rules of religion and none of the sort of thoughtfulness and the spirit of it. So it's, it's kind of a nice thing, the parallel there. And of course, is there another way to go? Which is going to be both of their questions. Let's listen to Javert's. Then must I now begin to doubt Who never doubted all these years My heart is stone and still it trembles The world I have known is lost in shadows Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know That granting me my life today this man has killed me even so. All right. And then obviously we get Javert a lot more rigid, a lot more hard, right? And it's funny because Valjean had said in his really emotional moment, take an eye for an eye, turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived where all I have known, which is actually kind of describing how Javert has lived his life, right? So Javert is saying, must I now begin to doubt, right? It's not even like, am I really doubting now? It's, do I have to, right? My heart is stone and still it trembles. Javert likes that world. He likes the place where he doesn't have to feel things. He likes the things, the world where he doesn't have to doubt things. This is not an easy thing, right? Is he from heaven for, uh, or from hell, right? One or the other, cannot be both. And then does he know, granting me my life today, this man has killed me even so, right? And then we're going to get to the part that I love the very, very most about both of these songs, because they're going to have basically the exact same thing, but with very, very slight difference to illustrate that they're both really undergoing the same process. I am reaching, but I fall. The night is closing in, and I stare into the void. To the whirlpool of my sin I'll escape now from the world 
from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must So good. Colm Wilkinson with those crazy notes. All right, let's listen to Javert's. I am reaching, but I fall. And the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go. Okay, so obviously the same notes and a lot of the same words. The show is telling us that these two are the same in many, many ways. But of course, we're seeing something very different. So this part of this song is so interesting because they've really pulled away a lot of the music, right? This is a very, very simple melody. It's not fancy. There's not a lot of high notes. You can hear the real moment here. It's so contained and it's so on the singer, on the actor to really have this moment. They're carrying the entire moment really up on their own, except for they have this tension in the violins behind them. But we're really at the edge of our seat to hear where this goes because it's just so small. We have to really lean in. And of course, so much of the language is exactly the same. They are each reaching but falling, right? For both of them, the ground they've built their lives on is gone. They stare into a void. For Javert, he said the stars are black and cold, which is, of course, a throwback to his earlier song where the stars have been their, his guide because they're, they're fixed and they're um, something that never changes. So now he doesn't have the thing that has been his guiding principle, both literally and in terms of this kind of metaphorical thing that he always had there. And one of the things I love is that Valjean says that he stares into the whirlpool of his sin. That's one of the lines that he has that's different, which is such an interesting image for so many reasons. First, it shows Valjean's mind. It's not just kind of like, oops, I did the wrong thing and we'll change. It's, oops, I did the wrong thing and now I'm accountable for those bad things and I recognize that they can really suck you in. It's a little bit poetic. It's, a, it's very thoughtful. It's how Valjean thinks. But also, Valjean is not actually physically looking at water in this moment. But you know who will be? Javert, who is standing over a river that he's going to throw himself into. So actually, in Valjean's section, there's a little foreshadowing of Javert's future. And of course, the other thing that, that happens at the end of this, too, is that they both say, I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Um, and then Valjean says, Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. And Javert says, there is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go on, right? But they both have that line, I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. They, they cannot live in the world that they have been living in. But even though this line is exactly the same, for Valjean, escaping the world of Jean Valjean means literally escaping the world of the convict Jean Valjean and remaking himself as someone else. It's practical because we've seen that Valjean as a convict can't actually do or achieve much. He's treated as sort of a fourth-class citizen by everybody. 
But it's also something that Valjean is going to have to struggle with. He's going to have to forgive himself for being wrong. And that's something he's going to kind of have to deal with at the end of his life, that it's a lot about redemption. It's a lot about being able to accept that Jean Valjean is who he is. And that's that's all of the things that he is. And there's so much about name and identity in this show. Oh, my God. The, the number of times somebody says, like, I am this or give someone a name. It's very important. And we, of course, I am who am I? I'm 24601. There's so much, but that's a different podcast. But in those lines, Javert can't adjust, right? For him, living in the world of Jean Valjean is a world where he was wrong. And that's an impossible world. He has to escape this world. It means two different things, I think. One is that Valjean was right. The world is full of complexity and gray zones that Javert refuses to see. But I think the other thing that I love about this is that Javert is, is really reverting to his comfort zone, which is blaming Valjean, right? Like putting Valjean into the, the role of the bad actor here because his last act, Javert's last act, is pulling the world back to the way he sees it. You know, it was just and right that Valjean should have been able to kill him in revenge at the barricade, but he didn't do that. So ultimately Javert still manages to make sure that Valjean has Javert's death on his tab, basically, right? He's kind of ultimately reverting to the world that he knows and the world that he believes in, which is that you have the right, you don't have the right, you're good or bad, you know, somebody who has won the life of this spy at the barricade to kill can can go through with that. So that's what I love about this show is that they've given you this thing, even if you don't necessarily know it, the show is telling you how similar these two are. They've wrestled with the same moment, using the same music, singing some of the same lyrics, but they've reacted to that crisis point in exactly the way that each of them must. It's so brilliant. And I think it's also great because for Valjean, this song comes so early in his life because he is a kind of person who can change himself early in his life, right? We wouldn't have the show if he didn't have this moment. But Javert is not the kind of person who's going to be thinking of things. He's not going to be the person who's putting himself in circumstances that require him to rethink things. So for him, this comes at the end of his life. And of course, he cannot change, so he kills himself. And Valjean can, and that's what ultimately saves him and saves so many people around him that he's able to help. So it's what you can do with the musical, right? You can take this music, this little chunk of music, and illustrate how complex the relationship is between these two characters. It's pretty great. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external issues, problems, forces that Les Mis contends with. And I think the main thing that encompasses all critique of Les Mis is its epic scope and whether or not that epic scope does justice to the original novel, does justice to the show itself. So we just kind of wanted to have a conversation because there are so many ways this could go. But we wanted to explore that and and talk about some of the, you know, it's obviously a show that's spanning about 17 years in terms of the plot that we see. You know, Jean Valjean is not a young man when he gets released from prison. He's been there for 19 years, I think. So and then we've got another 10 years after that while he is mayor and meets Fontaine and then. We've got another 10 years before the revolution, so we're really talking about 17 years in the scope of just what the story is looking at, or the story of the musical, but the book is even more expansive. So so how do you, how do you feel it does in tackling that epic scope, Monica? I think it does actually a really brilliant job because what's interesting is that 
it not only really boils down a lot of the plot of the novel to its essence, it actually kind of boosts up elements of the novel that are much smaller. So it's it's not only just a reduction job that they do, they've, they've actually dramatized it in a really meaningful way. For example, the character of Eponine, who feels like a major part of the show, is not a huge character in the novel at all. And I was surprised when I read it when I was a, a teenager that Eponine was my favorite character, as she is many people's. And I was waiting for her big moment in the book, and she really doesn't have that much of a, a prominence. I mean, she's peripheral at best in the novel. Yeah, she really doesn't. It, it's not, it's certainly not what it is in the musical. And so much happens in the show. I mean, in the first like 12 pages alone, there's like 17 things that have happened and it just dives right in. So it's kind of remarkable that they've done it as well as they have. Which is interesting because to take the counterpoint to that, you could also say that because they've adapted it so well, it really cheapens the story that Victor Hugo was trying to tell. People who are big fans of the novel are not necessarily big fans of the musical because of that. But I think what we agree on is that it's a strong adaptation because it uses the form of a musical to deepen the emotional truth of these characters and to resonate with audiences. And the totality of what it does as an adaptation is so powerful and why it's the international sensation that it is, I think. I've frequently joked that like any community theater production of Les Mis, people who see it will think it is better than anything they've seen on Broadway because the score carries such emotional weight and is so beautiful. And in some ways, just to get it all out and in the right order and with the right notes, like is a triumph in and of itself because it's such a wonderful piece of music that is so powerful and impactful and emotional and resonates with people. So it's an interesting conversation because I feel like you can academically take a point either side and debate it and both sides have their strengths and weaknesses, I guess. Yeah, well, I think you ultimately have to ask, you know, is is the story that the musical is telling the same story that Victor Hugo is telling in his novel? And I think that's very much true. And as we saw in the song analysis, there's a lot of moments where the music is really shorthanding a lot of that relationship, which obviously you can't do to the same depth that you can in a bajillion page book. But it's also interesting what you say about every production resonating as like the best production they've ever seen, which I think is another really interesting thing about this show. This show is about a very specific time in a very specific place. It's 1832, mostly, in Paris, France. It's about an uprising. And yet, it is one of the most universal musicals, I think, that it's done around the world and it's translated into these a million languages. There's something that they've managed to do, which is kind of tap into a quick of emotion. So it's funny you bring up the uprising because ultimately, I think you can take either point, as we've been talking about, you can say that the uprising is not given its due in terms of, I don't think they really, we're never given a true great explanation of who Lamarck is and why these students are uprising. But it is also the anthem of the show becomes do you hear the people sing and the swell of emotion from these students becomes a real bedrock for the show but then after they fail we've got the people cleaning up after them talking about how it was a waste of time and not really that great and so is the show endorsing that point of view or endorsing the revolt of these students and how does that play into its overall message and what the show is trying to say 
Well, I think that's what's kind of interesting about it is that the fact that they've managed to get this level of gray in what is ultimately only, you know, three hours and less is, and covering the span of 17 years is kind of remarkable because, yeah, I do think the politics of the uprising in 1832 are a little bit complicated. So for them to really get into what they're doing would be just, I think, too much time than anybody cares about. But I love that the show frames it in a very specific way. I love that also when the students, before the barricade is built, when they're in amongst the poor, the poor are mocking them. The Tenardiers are like, oh, here the students come slumming once again, you know, that as much as the students think that they're doing this very noble thing for poor people, ultimately, they're not actually doing it with the people that they're trying to help, you know, and then there's also like empty chairs and empty tables, there's like guilt after that. But I've always found it interesting that the show ends with Do You Hear the People Sing? Because the politics of the uprising are not actually the point of the show at all. So they don't want you to come out of that show thinking like, we should build a barricade against whatever they were building a barricade for. I think what the point of that is ultimately is that this show is so successful at encompassing all of these different people from all these different walks of life. You know, you have the Tenardiers, you have Fantine, who's someone who has really fallen to poverty. You have someone like Cosette, who, who rises from poverty to the middle class. Obviously, Valjean, who goes from being a criminal to being one of the not the aristocrats but being a sort of bourgeoisie a bourgeoisie you know that's one of the things that victor hugo did really beautifully that was really remarkable is that he showed people from all walks of life in his novels and i think the show has done a beautiful job of that as well i mean all of these people have names trevor nunn encouraged everybody to have a backstory for their many small characters and at the end do you hear the people sing i think ends up reading less as a specific political message and more about you have to listen to the people around you. You have to be aware of, of the voices of all of the people, you know? Well, ultimately, it's a populist, like the, the wisdom of the crowd is yeah. worth listening to and the wisdom of the common person yeah. is wild and beautiful. But also, it could just be the final tomorrow comes to be a very powerful statement and did they just include it for that lyric because like tomorrow we hope for a better world and yeah we get we accomplish that together and with acts of kindness and with caring about our fellow human and that is kind of the backbone of their political revolution but you're right is that that's not really the focus yeah and and it's funny because i think you know the mistake that valjean makes i mean i think he makes two major mistakes in the show that he has to adjust from he actually really makes three but the first one is deciding that because the world sees him as a criminal he's going to become a criminal the second one is misplacing his trust in his foreman and not helping fontaine himself which is the one that he really ends up punishing himself for you know, the vow that he makes to Fontaine to take care of Cosette for all of her life is because he failed Fontaine the first time, you know? So I think that's a real lesson of the show is you have to listen and you can't just go blindly following the rules, which is also what ultimately dooms Javert is that he has to learn that it's more complicated than that, that the rules are not necessarily right. So the message of the show is kind of, you have to question the rules and you have to listen to the people for yourself, to find it for yourself, to learn for yourself how you can be a better person. It's interesting, too, when you think about it, this is not a podcast about The Hunchback of Notre Dame, but because it is Victor Hugo's other major work, there are definitely thematic overlaps. Yeah. And The Hunchback of Notre Dame is much more a blatant critique 
of religion and politics than Les Mis is in the sense that the political plight of the Romani people is central to the Hunchback of Notre Dame and the corruption of religion to the end of political purpose is right at the heart of what is happening and what is being discussed in the hunchback and you know beyond just the dual the dualities of man and what we view as beautiful isn't always you know all that stuff but Les Mis is much more concerned with personal journey I think and the good that can come from ordinary people not just you know a marginalized group or a, a person who's considered an outsider but the individual journeys of each of these characters is what matters and we haven't talked a ton about the I mean we have it in the musical analysis but the relationship and interplay of Jean Valjean and Javert is the central relationship of the show in so many ways and we haven't really explored and talked about that yet but it's all about how each of them relate to the common people and the choices that they make individually and how that affects those around them and the society as a whole. Yeah, I like the way that you say that. I mean, it's interesting because I don't think of Valjean and Javert as, I wouldn't say that that was the primary thing with them, but I think that's also really true. I haven't actually really thought of it as the way that they interact with other people. And with the epic scope too, I don't even know that we're getting the full three-dimensional depictions of some of the characters that we could. I think... Unfortunately, the character who suffers most from that is Cassette, who really doesn't get to do anything other than be pretty vulnerable and quite virginal, uh, which seems to be her overarching trait, which is a little bit the symbol of what she is, and that is present in the novel as well. But at the risk of being hot-taking and sounding judgmental, like, does anyone like Cosette? Like, what's interesting about Cosette? Like, there's got to be something, right? Yeah, well, I actually think it's it's in there. But the problem is that, I mean, there's two problems, really, which is one that everybody loves Eponine so much and you spend so much more time with her and Marius that- Because Eponine's great and gets to do so much. I know, and she <laughs> loves Marius so much and he just doesn't even see it. And then he just like falls madly in love with Cosette after just like seeing her, which doesn't feel fair or, you know, so we're, we're hurting for Eponine and we're immediately not on Cosette's side. But the other thing is, I think what's challenging about Cosette is Cosette's growth is really, it's more of an absence of a thing, you know, because she's been so sheltered by Jean Valjean. She hasn't been allowed to kind of experience anything. And when you have a character whose main traits are a kind of lack of experience or knowledge or wanting to know things, it's a little bit challenging to write for. I mean, in some ways, it's the it's the similar problem that you have with Joanna and Sweeney Todd, where it's like, a character who knows that they don't know enough, but if you don't know enough, there's not a ton to sing about. So there's that too, where it's like, she's actually kind of struggling against the fact that her father is so protective of her, but that's just not that interesting to watch compared to something like Eponine, who has so many things that she's dealing with. And then, you know, it's funny because at the end, the, the final thing that Valjean has to learn is that he he's always trying to protect her, even to the point of not telling her anything about who he is, which is the ultimate, like, he has to learn that his story is actually a gift to her, not something that's going to harm her. But yeah, she feels a little bit blank, I think, because she is a little bit blank, because she hasn't had the time or experience to go out and um, live life and, and experience things and have friends and meet people and know stuff. Also, she has to wear that terrible black dress. Oh, 100%. You know, and I think in some ways, too, you don't get much investment in that relationship beyond what Jean Valjean does to save her and how much he tries to protect 
character. We really don't get much nuance from her side of it. Yeah, and it's interesting because they've given her song to her as a child, which is wonderful and means that we get to see some things like how much she yearns to be a normal child, how badly she's mistreated, and even a little bit of kind of mysticism because she she describes a woman all in white who holds her and sings a lullaby. And, and we kind of feel like that's probably Fantine who's all in white on her deathbed and so desperate to connect with Cosette. But it does mean that we're denying the adult Cosette a real kind of similar moment of introspection besides in my life which you get a little bit a little chunk of but it feels like the show would have to go into greater depth to kind of give her a, a moment and i'm not sure what that moment would say besides what we already know which is she wants to be able to be a little freer that valjean is protecting her too much right Definitely that, or even investing more just in their relationship and we get to see more interaction of how he is really a father to her, not just as father being protector, but father as being a caring, loving, generous of spirit, supporter, encourager almost. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just like, I am man, I must protect child. And it's also their love story with Mary is so fast. It's just hard to believe that that's based on anything real. Which she kind of points out and in my life, like, is this even possible to fall in love so fast and all that stuff? She is interested in that. I think, you know, one of the other things I struggle with with Les Mis is I'm not sure how on stage, other than through repeated behavior or clear visual storytelling, that we're supposed to understand that the mayor uh, and the owner of this factory is Jean Valjean. In the movie, we have the benefit of Hugh Jackman and everyone you know we know who Hugh Jackman is we've associated that face and so when we see that face again we're like oh it's Jean Valjean like time has passed he's rich now but on stage I really struggle to follow that story and there aren't really written in moments where we get to see his brute strength as a prisoner that Javert would notice and see when he lifts the cart or anything like that there there tend to be there are some of those gaps that I think that aren't often articulated well in the storytelling on stage and maybe that's personal grievance so I'm kind of bringing it up just as a I don't know if that's something other people have struggled with when they watch the show for the first time or when they interact with it well it's kind of an insane prospect it's like you have a protagonist who in essence takes on a bunch of different identities over the course of the show that are all very different visually and in a world where there's a lot of different characters in a lot of different times so so it's a difficult thing I mean I always find it so funny when Valjean first appears after he's a convict and he decides to change his life. And there's that line where he says, you know, I own a business of repute. I am the mayor of this town. They get away with it because it feels like this can't happen here. I'm I'm a businessman and I own a bit. But it's such a funny exposition drop of like, oh, hey, I guess that's happened now. They get away with a lot, I think, too, because it's sung through, because it has that operatic format. I think we excuse a lot of it because the music and score are so strong that we we start to accept conventions of quick exposition and basic lyrics that are basically, if the, if that was a written scene, I think we would start to see the melodrama of Les Mis a lot clearer and I don't want to say lampoon it, but we give it less scrutiny because it is musically so strong, I think. I don't know. I scrutinize everything. I'm a dramaturg. <laughs> I know, but I'm saying like as an audience, we are so intoxicated by the music that we take leaps of faith that the show does answer quite many of those leaps of faith. But I think there are some that I'm a little bit like, how are we supposed to know that? How is that told? Like what? It's certainly a challenge to a, to a staging. And that brings us to our segment, Our Favorite Things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we discuss our favorite things about Les Mis. So, Annika, what's one of your favorite things about Les Mis? 
Well, I've already gone on the record as saying that I love Eponine so much, but I want to be more specific because I already talked about it on my own. So I'm going to hop past that and say Eponine's death. Eponine's death is just, I think, one of the great musical theater deaths. It is devastating. A Little Fall of Rain is devastating. You see in that moment an echo of what she's done in On My Own, which has gone from this like fantastical fantasizing about what her life could be like to a more realistic acceptance of what it is. And in that moment, she kind of doesn't want to hear Mary is saying, like, if I could heal your wounds with words of love. And she just is like, she doesn't want the lies anymore. It's such a satisfying death and such a tragic death for such a beloved character. I'm going to actually sub categorize it too, or I'm going to get a freebie in my favorite things on this one, which is I'm going to put in Gavroche's death as well, which is also a great musical theater death. It really kind of raises the stakes when you see that this child is killed in the sacrifice of this rebellion that you don't really understand, but it's such a perfect end for that character. Interestingly enough, in the novel, Gavroche is actually Eponine's brother. He's a Thenardier, which they don't do in the show. I don't remember that. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the Thenardiers. There's like a bunch more, but yeah, this is a show that has just really across the board great deaths. The characters that you care about die in ways that are really emotional every single time. I mean, Fontaine with her kind of imagining Cosette. Eponine, obviously, with this killer, like, dying in the, in the arms of the person she loves, knowing that he'll never really love her. And the first to fall on the barricade, which Angelra says, which is such a perfectly not-the-point thing for him to say, which is, like, she did not die at all for this cause. She died solely so that she could do what Marius asked her to do and impress him and just knowing all of that, it truly breaks your heart. Gavroche's death, and even Jean Valjean at the end, who gets this big send-off. So all the deaths are so sad, and I think if there's one particular image that goes along with these, just the visual image of all of the people who have fallen on the barricade lying there as the turntable spins, and you really see them all, is such a gorgeous moment and such a a perfect visual representation of the sacrifice that was made for this cause and all these kind of beautiful people, these young students and Gavroche and what a waste, what a sad waste it is. But I love that they threw that in and it's purely music, it's purely staging, and it just has so much weight. You don't need it for the plot because you already know all those people are dead, but it gives you a moment to to really have it set in what that means and what that has meant and kind of a little bit the futility of it. And I think it's such a bold and beautiful moment. It's so interesting. I laugh at her death all the time, which sounds terrible, but I laugh because I'm obsessed with how she is frequently referred to in lyrics as Ponine, as opposed to just actually saying Eponine because it takes an extra syllable. Um, but I frequently, anytime I hear her name, I, I feel like I'm always saying like, Ponine, have you no fear? Like all the time. <laughs> And yes, indeed, you did just hear my Nick Jonas impersonation. You are correct. <laughs> so what's your first favorite thing, Michael? I cannot even get into how much I love One Day More because I think it is a triumph of musical theater. It is one of the most glorious ends of an act that have ever existed. It provided endless hours of entertainment in my teenage years where we would have car sing-alongs with my friends and you take on different roles and you have silly hand movements and you have the pining love between you and your friends when you have to play Marius and someone else's cosette. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless with One Day More, but it is a beautiful piece of music. It almost, whenever I see it or I hear it, I have to work to not cry because I think it's so beautiful. 
and obviously the iconic staging of the march and the red flag and there's so much about it that's so incredible so i that's that's my absolute favorite thing about Les Mis. I totally, totally agree. One Day More is so perfect as an end of Act One. It just reminds you where all of these stories stand. They almost all stand right at the precipice of like drama to come. It's so good. It's so good. Now I just want to sing it. It's stupid good. And Andro Loss is like the way he soars over. I mean, the layering of it, the it's so good. It's just, it's so good. What's your number two? Well, my number two is kind of Les Mis adjacent, actually. I'm sneaking it in here. It is one of my most favorite stories. Actually, no, it is my favorite story of a lyric flub on stage ever, which is a friend told me once that he was on the tour of Les Mis. I think he, I can't remember which part he was playing, but he said that it, it's notoriously difficult when you're coming over the barricade to try to hear your cue because you have to physically climb over this barricade. You can't kind of like, there's no secret trapdoor or anything. And all of that music is like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So it's, it's a lot of that kind of thing. So it's a little bit tricky to just jump into. And he was on a tour of the show and there was a, an understudy Javert who had to go on for the first time and climbed over the barricade, was thrown by trying to find his cue. So instead of saying the line as it was, which is, Listen, my friends, I have done as I said. I have been to their side. I have counted each man. I will tell what I can. So instead of saying that, what he said was, listen, my friends, I have been to their house. I have watered their plants. I have fed all their pets. I will do it again. Because one thing that happens when you're performing is you just get slightly off track and then you get majorly off track because you're just like filling your, your mouth with words. And so this was the random thing that came out of this guy's mouth. And uh, of course, then he had to just look at everybody staring at him as though he's delivered this message of spying instead of this ridiculous message of how he's forced himself into a domestic situation in someone's random house with pets and plants. So it is my favorite. I will tell it forever. I love it so much. It's honestly iconic. It is. And and also, like, there's something so funny about it because, as we talked about, like, Les Mis is a very earnest show. It does have moments of humor, but for the most part, it takes itself very seriously. So that makes it even more funny to think of these ridiculous things going horribly wrong. Which is a great segue to my second favorite thing, which would be the Tenardiers, who I think are such fantastic comic relief in the show. I also think they're such great body villains that aren't really villains, antagonists that just come in and mess it up just enough, but you don't really ever fully hate them. They're funny. I enjoy them. I welcome their presence. Anytime they walk on, I'm happy that they're there. I think that they're they're two great characters. In particular, Madame Snardier. I just think she's an HBIC and I'm here for it. Yeah. And Master of the House is such a fun number in a show with not much fun. I will go on the record as saying I love Master of the House. I'm not quite sure why people don't, which is, I guess, a controversial statement. I don't, I didn't know that. I think it's a great number. I love it. It's like one of the first numbers in the show I fell in love with. Me too. Me too. It's a great little mini production number in a show that really doesn't have that kind of boost in it. And I think it's also structurally super valuable to have them as characters, but also to have that song and give us a little bit of that kind of traditional, almost English music hall kind of rum-de-tum-tum quality song in the middle of Act 1 that gets us to uh, the end of the act. And it's interesting, you know, as I think about that style too, 
that they were inspired by Oliver because it does have a very umpapa like quality. I think it's so interesting that they were inspired by Oliver, but how much that really, to me, is influenced the sound of the show and the overall mood, look, and presentation of the show, considering they're two very specific times and places and two very different uh, kinds of social commentary. I, I, I think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Monica, what is your third favorite thing about Les Mis? My third favorite thing, and there's so many little things, but there's one moment that really just, it's such a, it's a little detail and it's such a brilliant detail, which is that at the end of the show, Valjean is in the, wherever he's gone to kind of die on his own. And he takes out the candlesticks that the bishop gave him and lights them. And it's one of those things where it's like, you might not even notice it. It's not in a lyric. It's just a thing that happens. And honestly, if you don't, I don't think you will suffer in your understanding of the story it's not a major plot moment but there is something that is so moving to me about that detail that this man has changed his entire life based on this one encounter with the bishop and then he managed to do it without ever getting rid of those candlesticks he's just kept them the entire time and clearly kept them as something important to him as and as a reminder of that encounter and it just I think it shows you so much about who Valjean is and how much that interaction meant to him and chokes me up a little bit because it's just it's such a perfect indication of who that character is and also that that bishop was right to do that you know to take that risk on this man which is such a crazy thing to do and there's a lot more in the book about how poor that bishop is and how that's like kind of the last silver he has he, he, he's not a rich person so it's it's just a really beautiful reminder of that i love when those little moments come back and it's interesting in the movie one of the things they changed was the line i have bought your soul for god um they changed it to i have saved your soul for god and i never i i don't like that I don't know why they did that. I'd love to know why they did that because I think that the bishop is speaking Valjean's language. He's speaking the language of a convict, that this is an exchange that he has made, that these candles are purchasing Valjean, that he wants something from Valjean in exchange for them. And I I think that is fairer and smarter than just, I have saved your soul for God is so much less grounded in the reality of who Valjean is in that moment and feels like it's less meaningful and less of a, a promise to make. Anyway, so I just, every time those candlesticks come out, I'm like, oh God, it's the candlesticks. Well, it's interesting too that Colm Wilkinson obviously played it in the movie and obviously consented to that lyric change or didn't raise enough of us about it. I don't know. But to echo your first point that he brings back out the candlesticks at the end, I find in the movie that the bishop is part of who welcomes him to the afterlife. Yes. And I think it's so moving and touching. And I don't know if that's a holdover from the musical. I don't recall that as being a part of the musical, but maybe it is. I just don't remember it. But I think it's a really touching, powerful symbol, not only because it's Colm Wilkinson, but because it is the bishop took this action and this act of kindness and really changed a life because of it and look at the good that has come of that one act of kindness. Yeah, it's a really, it's it's lovely. So my final favorite thing about Les Mis is the absolutely insane vocals that and options that people that accompany various performers in it. There are so many moments where someone just seems like, you know, a guy belts outrageously like two, four, six, oh, one. And you're like, what? Why do we need to go that high? But like, I'm here for it. Similarly to there's a take my five. And you're like, why? 
why, but it's amazing. The counterpoint to that is also, I want to shout out the lady-based moments in Les Mis, which mostly belong to Fontaine. I think Eponine has some too. But like, Monsieur, don't mock me now, I pray. It's like, what is happening there? Like, we got some Mary Martin alto work happening, and I respect it. I, but so the the vocal capability that it requires to do this show and how people find ways to either show that off or just like really live in that wide range, I think is really impressive and awesome. And I think one of the reasons that it continues to have such a fan culture around it, because you can just obsess over how certain people sound in the material. So that would be my, my final favorite thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard one to sing, but man, great one to listen to. And that brings us to our last segment, corner of the sky. Gotta find my corner. So, Annika, obviously Les Mis is a part of the quote-unquote British invasion of Broadway, but what beyond that or expand on how that is its corner of the sky? Well, this, I think, is the ultimate epic. It shows that it can be done. You know, they took an epic novel, massive in size and scope, and they made it into a show that covers over a decade of time, several different locations, you know, historical topics, lots and lots of characters of all different social elements. I mean, it's not a contained world. It's not like something like Phantom of the Opera, which is only taking place inside one building. It's just large on every scale. It's large emotionally. It's all of these things and and it really works. The set was large. Beyond that, I think that it just hits a real emotional quick. Like there's something that's just deeply resonant about Les Mis, just on a basic human level. Yeah, so hopping off that, obviously it has like international success in a way that other shows don't in the sense of being an, an emotionally driven piece. But it also is one of the few, and I'm having a really hard time trying to come up with another musical that did not originate in the English language that not only like played Broadway to immense success, but played internationally to big success. Obviously, Broadway and the West End go back and forth in terms of having, and Canada is involved in that, is increasing over the years. But I can't think of another musical that originated outside of the English language that not only was translated into English, let alone take the world by storm. So it is interesting that its music carries so much emotion in it that it transcends language. I mean, music is the universal language, right? But I think Les Mis proves that on a certain level. Yeah. And it's funny because there are lots of other places where musicals are written and loved. And we still haven't had in the years since Les Mis a lot of crossover in those worlds. I mean, we've exported a bunch, but we haven't quite gotten that same crossover from somewhere else and it's it's even more remarkable when you think of like France did not actually really have much of a culture of this at all so in some ways it was a little bit of a unicorn for them and it ended up just working so well also we can't leave out the importance of Cameron McIntosh and his strong producerial hand oh, for sure. in shaping crafting and making it a show that what is the sensation that it is So it definitely has the British influence that made it into a piece of musical theater. But it's fascinating that that's not the music. The music is where it all started. And I think in so many ways, when we go back to the great musicals, they're called musicals for a reason. The music has got to be good, right? And the music seems to transcend 
every culture. Absolutely. I don't think without Trevor Nunn and the RSC and Cameron McIntosh, it would it would be what it is. It's a re- it's a really just remarkable example of something that had a lot of chances not to work and worked every step of the way. Even, you know, in a way that kind of baffled the critics at every stage, you know. So it, it resonates beyond the critical establishment in some way. It, it just touches the nerve with people rather than those in power. A nice parallel of Jean Valjean, right? That yeah. like he kind of defies all the odds to have a successful and loving, compassionate life and people love him. And But the authorities don't necessarily. Well, that about wraps it up from us here. It's been a pleasure to dive into the brilliance of Les Mis for this episode. And Annika, would you like to tell the good people what is in the spotlight next episode? I will indeed. We're going to a slightly different location, but another historical topic. And we're going to talk about cabaret. I honestly, I feel like it's become a part of the show that we then badly represent some piece of iconic music from each show. podcast is just going to be us singing musicals badly for like three hours. And rather than subject our audience to more bad singing, we'll go ahead and sign off here. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time.